The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In reviewing the life and works of F. Scott Fitzgerald, the esteemed critic Lionel Trilling once lamented that Fitzgerald did not fully realize his powers, except once. Trilling wrote, quote, But his quality was a great one, and on one occasion, in The Great Gatsby, it was as finely crystallized in art as it deserved to be. End quote. Some will object to that. Our own Mike Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, might argue that Tender is the Night is at least as good, and there are a half a dozen short stories, or maybe more, that are tough to beat as well. But it's true. There's something about The Great Gatsby, conceived when Fitzgerald was barely 26 and published before he turned 30, that is magical. The book was well-reviewed, but did not sell well, only about 20,000 copies, and it was out of print by the time Fitzgerald died at age 44. He believed he had been a failure, that he had had a bit of talent, but that he had wasted it. He was in Hollywood by then, writing painfully honest essays that his friends discouraged him from publishing, and short stories about a struggling writer, as he was, that were both revealing and lightweight. His short life was like the life of a literary rock star, with early success, clear milestones, striking events, celebrity, relationships, dramatic ups and downs, and along the way, enduring works of pop art and art. And the greatest of these, perhaps and probably, is The Great Gatsby. We'll have that story today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, The Great Gatsby, Fitzgerald as a Rockstar. Well, I've got a certain phrase in my mind, I suppose, play the hits. Did you ever watch the show WKRP in Cincinnati? It didn't have the same post-life as other shows. It wasn't on as often in reruns, and it wasn't as big a hit on DVD and so forth, because the producers had a hard time getting the rights to all the songs that they had used. It's like the opposite of It's a Wonderful Life, where the copyright expired and television stations could play it for free for a while. It was more like the Larry Sanders show, the Gary Shandling masterpiece, where the musical guests made the show better, but also took it out of the rotation due to rights issues. Speaking of which, The Great Gatsby is scheduled to come out of copyright on January 1st, 2021. That is soon. If that happens, we could see lots of versions of The Great Gatsby put out for free. We'll see how that shakes out in a few weeks. Anyway, WKRP in Cincinnati was about a guy who gets a job as a program director at a radio station that played easy listening music. This is the late 1970s, by the way, 1978. And he tries to turn around the station by changing the format from easy, easy listening to rock and roll. Now... Well, it's a funny show. It has good characters. It's one of those workplace sitcoms. Wacky people. You know how it is. Now, what stuck with me is what happened after this program director hires a new DJ and turns another DJ loose, allowing them to play rock and roll instead of the easy listening elevator music. What what happens next is in the next few seasons, the station doesn't do that much better. It moves up a little What's the problem? Everyone at the station is happy, especially the DJs. They're playing what they want to play. Things got a little bit better in the ratings. But from the program director's perspective, they did not get get better enough. And it's because the DJs are not playing the hits. This was all based on a real-life experience that the show's creator had selling ads at an actual radio station. They're not playing the hits. They love what they play. They can play whatever they want. They can play whole album sides if they want. They can play deep tracks. But they're not playing the hits and the ratings don't follow. And watching that show made me think about the radio stations that I was listening to at the time. I had two top 40 stations that I could pick from. Well, those played the hits, obviously. They played them over and over. The number one song might be played every hour, maybe twice an hour. 
even more. That was part of what was fun. You got to hear the best songs, the newest songs, the most popular songs again and again. You could just flip on the radio and you'd hear something big. Sometimes you didn't like a particular song and then it was torture because you'd hear it 10 times in a day or something. But in general, it made sense what they were doing. And then there was a classic rock station, and that one was interesting. It seemed kind of like WKRP to me. I imagined it being that way anyway. Classic rock in 1982 was kind of funny. They didn't play anything from the 1950s. No Elvis, no Chuck Berry, no Little Richard. Everything was from the 60s and 70s. The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, the Mamas and Papas, the Eagles, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix. Those songs are in my DNA now. On weekends... The station played Block Party Weekends, which was three songs by the same band, back to back to back. And I wondered, are these DJs playing the hits? Was there a struggle at this classic rock station the way there was at WKRP? Did the DJs want to play deep album tracks? Well, you could kind of tell for the Block Party Weekends. The Rolling Stones and the Beatles were a little tough to tell, sure. The hits were played, but those groups had dozens of hits. But when it was the Mamas and Papas or the Birds or Jimi Hendrix or Steppenwolf, it was always the same handful of songs. A block of Steppenwolf always had Born to be Wild and Magic Carpet Ride and one other. Always. Those were the hits. What did that mean? It meant you never heard For No One by the Beatles. Might be my favorite song. You never heard I'm Only Sleeping. You never heard A Day in the Life or Rarely. You never heard, what else? Two of Us. Those songs just didn't appear. Those are great songs. I'm sure the DJs wanted to play them instead of Help or what else? Get Back. I'm sure they wanted to dip into the catalog and play some of those songs that you did not hear as often. And in fact, I know they felt that way because one DJ quit because he was tired of playing Stairway to Heaven and the station made him. Play the hits. What didn't have to play the hits? College radio. They were still pretty free. That was a wild listen. My sister was big into college radio. She also liked jazz and all kinds of stuff. She was wise beyond her years and ahead of her time and a fish out of water. Imagine Lisa Simpson at age 16 or 17 or 18 in 1988 listening to the Violent Femmes. And I was listening to the hits. So that phrase, play the hits, play the hits, somehow it's always in my mind. I'm kind of like the DJ here, aren't I? And I'm the program director and the station owner. And I see it in the emails that I get from you, dear listeners, and the download numbers. Play the hits, Jack. Sometimes people will say, I love learning about writers I've never heard about before. I love new discoveries. I love getting recommendations. Thank you so much for telling me about Octavia Butler or Gene Toomer. Or Dr. Johnson, thanks for mentioning Javier Marias. And if you're newer to literature, you might be glad to hear about anything. Middlemarch or Graham Greene or Elizabeth Bishop or one of our Chekhov stories. Those might be new for you. That's great. I love the spirit of openness. I love the discovery. I find it invigorating myself to dive into those works and share them with you. But I think there's also something very appealing about works that people have read or were assigned in school, or know something about. The old familiars, Pride and Prejudice, The Catcher in the Rye, John Steinbeck, Hemingway, Toni Morrison, Moby Dick, Charles Dickens, playing the hits. I get it. And I'm not going, hey, one of the fun things about doing a podcast is I don't have a boss, I don't have someone in my ear saying, do this and this and this, or you're out, pal. (laughs) There's no one to tell me I'm out. It's just you, the listeners, you with your reviews and your ratings and your clicks, you with your emails and your hopes and your desires, which I can glean and intuit from the audience size and so on, and the things you tell me. I want to please. And so when I plan things in one direction and I take a look at the list of upcoming episodes, sometimes I hear a voice that says, oh, these are all books everyone has heard about. Why don't you find something new? And sometimes, probably more often, I look at the list and think, play some hits, Jack. Play some hits. And so I cross off the episode I have planned and I schedule one like The Great Gatsby. 
This is a hit, capital H, a candidate for the greatest American novel. It has a fascinating backstory, a fascinating writerly career behind it, an icon of a writer and an iconic work. Fitzgerald said once that a writer should write for the youth of his generation, the critic of the next generation, and the schoolmaster forever after, and that is exactly what he did. He didn't live long enough to see phase two and phase three of his plan come to fruit come to fruition. <laughs> oh my, what a word, fruition. But that's exactly what happened to him. And he did it with the book that maybe wasn't the biggest hit for him. It didn't score with the youth the way his first novel, The Side of Paradise, did. It didn't make him as famous as his short stories had. His short stories were read by many, many more people. It didn't pay the bills the way those stories or his work in Hollywood did. But it is an undeniable hit. The Center for the Learning and Teaching of Literature put together a list of book-length works, most often taught in high school. The Great Gatsby is on it, but the survey they did seems to be fairly old to me, so let's see how it holds up. This is from Goodreads data, which is much more up-to-date. But on the other hand, the way they formed the question is not necessarily current, so it's not what books are being taught in high school now, necessarily. The way they asked the question was, what books were you required to read in high school? So that could be answered by someone who's 18 or someone who's 80. On the other hand, that's who my listeners are, too. So this makes sense to use. If the world has changed and 18-year-olds are reading something different now, a podcaster 20 years from now might use that list. Okay, enough preamble. Let's just go through the top 20 here. 20, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. 19, The Giver. 18, The Crucible. 17, Jane Eyre. 16, Fahrenheit 451. No real surprises here so far. 15, Pride and Prejudice. Interesting. That's a little longer than some of these others. Jane Eyre was too, I guess. Notice that a lot of these are short books, which it's easy to teach. So this isn't really a best of list. You won't find Anna Karenina or War and Peace on here, but you wouldn't expect to. Those books might take a lot longer to teach than uh, some of these shorter ones. It's hard to assign hundreds of pages to a high school student to read. Okay, 14. The Odyssey. Pretty impressive for Homer. 13, Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. Still no Great Gatsby. I'm starting to get worried. Hopefully it's still on here. If not, I'm going to feel foolish for starting this. 12, Huck Finn. That's good. 11, 1984, Orwell. We just did our Orwell show. Nice to see him on here. 10, The Scarlet Letter. There's another one we have to do yet. Another hit to play. (laughs) <laughs> that could be a stairway to heaven. A lot of these should get their own show, actually. I spent so much time in The Scarlet Letter. Years and years and years in that story. That short novel. My wife got her PhD in Hawthorne Studies, and we went to all these different sites and libraries and conferences. I might have a little Hawthorne PTSD. I notice we haven't done Henry James yet, either. That might be the same thing. But those will be fun to do when their turn arises. I have a lot of thoughts. Okay. Number nine is Hamlet. Can't argue with that. Eight, Catcher in the Rye, another short book, A Disaffected Teenager. It's easy to see why that's on here. Number seven, Of Mice and Men, another short one. Starting to get worried now. Not many slots left. Gatsby. Oh boy, Gatsby. Did you fall out of the top 20 when I wasn't looking? There aren't many slots left. Six, Macbeth. That's already two Shakespeare's in the top 10. I'm still expecting at least one more. Five, Animal Farm. Orwell's short masterpiece, other than Shakespeare. He's the only author on here twice. Four, Lord of the Flies, probably too high. I'd put Kafka's Metamorphosis in the top 20 instead of this book, but whatever. High school teachers know what works best for the students. Number three is The Great Gatsby. Number three, ahead of Macbeth. Ahead of Animal Farm, ahead of Hawk Finn. This is a readable, teachable book. Number two, if you're interested, is Romeo and Juliet. And number one is To Kill a Mockingbird. Notice how many of these top 20 are by people of color. Did you notice? Zero. How about the top 30? Still zero. Top 40? Same thing. First entry is Maya Angelou. 
at number 47. Zora Neale Hurston is at 49. Lorraine Hansberry is at 51. House on Mango Street is 53. Beloved is at 63. Hopefully this is a reflection of that issue I talked about at the beginning where the age that maybe listeners, Goodreads survey takers who were 60 or 70 or 80 didn't have those books assigned, but the younger generations coming up did, and 20 years from now those books will be higher as the newer generation starts filling out their survey forms. Those are certainly worthy books, although Beloved is long, which puts it at a bit of a disadvantage. Crime and Punishment and Moby Dick are better books than The Giver and Of Mice and Men, but they're harder to fit into a high school curriculum. I get it. I guess we'll see. But we're here today to talk about Gatsby, so let's get rolling. We'll take a quick break, come back with a listener email, another shrewd lover of Shakespeare's sonnets has weighed in, and then we'll go straight to the book that took a while to find its title. Gatsby was one early idea, just Gatsby. Also, Trimalchio, Trimalchio and West Egg, On the Road to West Egg, Under the Red, White, and Blue. That one almost made it, actually. Actually, all of these, <laughs> Fitzgerald really wanted to name it something other than The Great Gatsby. All of these titles were ones he would get excited about and he would fire off telegrams to his his uh, editor. The Gold-Hatted Gatsby was one, and The High-Bouncing Lover was another one. The last two, The Gold-Hatted Gatsby and The High-Bouncing Lover, come from the poem's epigraph, a work by Thomas Park Dinvilliers. Have you ever heard of him, that famous poet, Thomas Park Dinvilliers? Actually, He's not a real poet. He's a creation of Fitzgerald's, a character from this side of paradise, a student and would-be poet. So Fitzgerald wrote the poem himself. The poem is, quote, Then wear the gold hat if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her too. Till she cry, lover, gold-headed, high-bouncing lover, I must have you. End quote. That poem is terrible. Truly. I can't believe Fitzgerald wanted to take his title from it. Two titles he wanted to take from those lines. And he included the lines as the epigraph to his masterpiece. Fitzgerald had terrible judgment sometimes in life and in art, too. We might even ask how this became so successful in spite of his bad judgment, but let's save that for later. In any case, Fitzgerald tried to change the title all the way up to publication He thought it was only fair, rather bad than good. That was his quote. What the hell, F. Scott? Are you serious? The Great Gatsby is such a good title. The other titles are either too clunky, too dumb, or too obvious. They are, some of them, risible. The Great Gatsby is just right. Thank goodness for editors. And he had a good one, Maxwell Perkins. One of the best who ever lived. Hang on to Trimalchio. We will get back to that later. Okay. Actually, I don't know if we will get back to it later. We had a change of plans. It's a story about a Roman slave. Fitzgerald tells the story in the book, Gatsby. Okay, let's take our break and come back with Gatsby. I'm the Sheik of Araby. Your love belongs to me. When you're asleep Into your tent I'll creep Yes, baby, I'm gonna creep <laughs> The stars that shine above Will light our way Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, this email comes from Brian. Subject, very late indeed. Hello, Mr. Wilson. I just happened upon your History of Literature podcast and am hooked. I'm slowly catching up, so excuse me if this is old news from 2015. Just listen to your Sonnet episode. Sonnet 130 is my all-time favorite, though 73 speaks to me at my advanced age of 70. But I want to point out just one tiny bit of Shakespeare's genius. When he writes the lines, I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. Had that line been written in a conventional mode, it might have read something like, my mistress, dot, 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 treads upon the ground. That last half line would have had a bouncy rhythm. By using only on, he shows the plotting, entirely ungoddess-like tread of his beloved. Thanks for everything you do, Brian. Well, Brian, thank you for the email, and you're in luck. We did an, an entire month's worth of episodes on Shakespeare's sonnets very recently, including Sonnet 130, so you have that to look forward to in our archive. I agree with you and disagree with you slightly. Here's the slight disagreement. I'm not sure why we should think treads upon the ground would be a conventional mode. Your line, my mistress treads upon the ground, only has eight syllables, and you have some ellipses in there. But if we say, my mistress, when she walks, treads upon the ground, that would be 11 syllables. Since this is an iambic pentameter, of course, I think my mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground, which is 10 syllables is probably the more conventional line, but here's where I agree with you. We don't need to invent an alternative line and argue for it in order to see how good this line is, and you have put your finger on it. The key here is that he's not using a bouncy rhythm, as you say. There's something plotting. There's something earthbound, mundane, heavy about the way that line reads. Let's take it apart. I grant I never saw a goddess go. That's the beginning. That part of the line is frothier, isn't it? It has the alliteration and the words saw a goddess go practically lifts up into the sky. I never saw a goddess go. That phrase has lift. The S's and vowels and soft consonants. God, uh, there's no K in there. There's no T, no CH. Sound no ech, and no commas either. I grant I never saw a goddess go. It's like you're holding a balloon and your arm is rising, and by the time you reach the word go, you're letting go, and the balloon, or the goddess, lifts up into the sky. I grant I never saw a goddess go. All one breath, and at the end, we're breathless. But the next line has two commas. It's three syllables interrupted. Three more syllables, interrupted again, and then four syllables. That's a balloon dying, sagging, falling back to earth. That's a stumble. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. We can read it a little quicker. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. But that's eliminating commas that are there to pause us, to make us hesitate. It's a lurching line with those commas. And the sounds of the words, too treads, ground, listen to the heaviness of the consonants there, treads, where is the vowel in that word, a little eh, smash between treads, and ground, same thing, a little ow, a little bit of vowel in there between g and listen to the first line again, the first part is a little heavy on consonants, not as much, I grant, that's the man standing on the ground. 
The balloon is in his hand. He's about to lift it and let it go. I grant, he says, I grant, I never saw a goddess go. I never saw a goddess go. That's so light and airy. Just like a goddess bumping along, walking, drifting, soaring, floating, rising. Now listen to the imprisoned vowels as we lurch along with the beloved. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. Treads on the ground. It's like a a truck lumbering along with heavy wheels. It's heavy. It's the base. It's, It's walking with dinosaur legs through the mud. Right? I'm with you. Not on the upon, necessarily. I'm not sure we need to imagine that as the natural alternative. But I'm with you on the line. This mistress doesn't go like a goddess. She treads on the ground. And as usual, with that savvy, preternaturally gifted genius, Shakespeare, it all just seems to work. The right words appeared to him at the right time, to his eyes and to his ears, and he snatched them out of the air and set them down on paper. And time after time, captured that lightning and put it into that bottle. And we have all been holding that bottle up and marveling at it and passing it around for the last 400 years and change. And for almost 100 years, we've been enjoying The Great Gatsby. Let's take another quick break and hear all about that compelling little book. Every morning, every evening, ain't we got fun? Not much money, oh, but honey, ain't we got fun? The rent's unpaid, dear, we haven't a car, but anyway, we'll stay as we are, even if we owe the grocer, though we have fun. Tax collectors getting closer. Still, we have fun. Okay, so let me put my cards on the table here. I think The Great Gatsby is a wonderful book, and I think it does have a claim at being the great American novel. It's probably in the top four or five candidates. We don't need to argue that here. I just want to explain why I think that. And for that, I need to start with a couple of stories to put you in the right frame of mind. But first, I'll give you a quick overview of the history of the book for those of you who come to the show to hear stuff like that. So Fitzgerald was born in 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota, into a family with some money, upper middle class. He went to Princeton for a while where he fell into a literary crowd that included the poet John Peel Bishop and the critic Edmund Bunny Wilson. He dropped out in 1917 to join the army. This was the time of the Great War. It took him to Alabama where he met the love of his life, the wealthy socialite Zelda Sayre. She refused to marry him because he was not rich enough, or maybe to be charitable, we can say not financially stable enough. But then, when he was still 23, he published the novel This Side of Paradise, which was a hit, and she agreed. He had the success, he had the marriage, he was on his way. This was 1920, and the jazz age was about to begin. Another book followed, The Beautiful and Damned, which wasn't quite as successful. And although he was selling stories now, which made him a lot more money than his novels did, he was starting to feel a little restless. The jazz age was wild. It was full of parties. It was full of wealth. It was a time when Americans went to post-war Europe and gallivanted around on the strength of the U.S. dollar, and America was on the rise There was a stock market rise that was pumping wealth into the economy, and there were young people coming into their own. These were years of trains, of flapper girls, of speakeasies, of gangsters, of roadsters, of drunken parties. And for Fitzgerald, the Plaza Hotel, and a famous legend that he and Zelda one night jumped into the fountain in front. Maybe that happened. Others say that it was the fountain in Union Square or Washington Square Park. Some say it was Scott by himself. In any case, this was the atmosphere of the day for couples like the Fitzgeralds, the plaza. Scott loved the plaza. They ate there frequently when they lived in an apartment nearby. And even after they moved out of New York, they would return there, stay there at the plaza, be there. And there were other parties too, parties out on Long Island where old money and new money were mixing with grand mansions rising along the coasts. And so... 
With two novels under his belt and a growing celebrity as a man on the rise, he started drafting his masterpiece, The Great Gatsby. This was 1923 now. The book is short, 55,000 words, but the drafting did not go quickly. The Fitzgeralds moved to the French Riviera. Scott wrote several drafts, started sending them to his publisher, his editor, Maxwell Perkins, and making a lot of changes. Fitzgerald had in mind, quote, something new. Underline that word. Something extraordinary and beautiful and simple and intricately patterned, end quote. I think that's the plot he's talking about. I think that's the characters and the way they interact with one another and the way the tragedy plays out. The newness, I think, refers to the narration and the book's style, but underneath that is the mechanics of the plot. I think that's what he means by a, a simple and intricate pattern. The mechanics. I have some thoughts about that that I will save for a little bit. Perkins thought the book was vague and asked Fitzgerald to revise. A lot of the focus of the vagueness was on the titular character, the Gatsby figure, who was vague. Fitzgerald added some detail, but held fast to his notion that some vagueness was allowable, even important, because of what Gatsby was representing here. I'll have some more about that later, too. Gatsby combines a lot of what was going on in the 1920s in this jazz age. Fitzgerald actually is often credited with coining the phrase jazz age, or at least popularizing it, with one of his short story collections, Tales from the Jazz Age. We heard some music from the jazz age earlier. I cheated a little. The first one we heard was not a cheat. Fats Waller, the Sheik of Araby. I was so tempted to use the Beatles version, but I think the Fats Waller, which is also good. By the, by the way, is there a better nickname than Fats? I love that nickname, Fats. Could I be Fats Wilson? I might not be big enough, but wouldn't that please everyone? You'd think of me as jolly and happy and a little artistic, right? Fats Wilson has a certain ring to it. Anyway, that was Fats Waller that we heard. The The second one was Ain't We Got Fun, which was Nelson Riddle and Peggy Lee. So not exactly from the 1920s, but the versions I found from the 1920s didn't have the right energy, the right spirit. And I think the one I chose does. It's peppy, but sad too. I can imagine that it's how the song sounded to Fitzgerald, maybe when he heard it in a club. He quotes both those songs, which is why I chose them, The Sheik of Araby and Ain't We Got Fun. He quotes both of those in The Great Gatsby, of course. He includes the lyrics in there, if you've forgotten. It's a book of parties and social climbing and social status and social signifiers. It's a book about doomed love, a book about trying to live in the past, a book about youth dying, youth misspent. A book about Midwesterners arriving in New York City like a bunch of party crashers. A book about the rise of gangsters and the youth coming home from the Great War. A book about being a young man trying to find your way in the world. About being an observer instead of a participant. About falling in love. About the role of narrators. About what it means to be honest in a world of cheats and liars and deceivers. Especially self-deceivers. It's a beautifully written book. It follows scene-based novels coming out of Thackeray and Flaubert and Wharton, whom Fitzgerald admired and borrowed from, and Joseph Conrad, another favorite of Fitzgerald's, from whom he took the narrative devices. But he was a stylist in the way that so many frustrated poets are when they turn to prose, finding delight in the sound of words and the perfect image. And he's got Salinger's gift for dialogue which he emphasizes in the right way to emphasize qualities like boredom or insistence or wry observation from unexpected people, mainly from young people, precociously young people, the beautiful people. Sometimes Fitzgerald puts syllables within words in italics just to get the right note of emphasis, conveying how the word sounds when it comes out of the mouths of these beautiful people. He borrowed heavily from Zelda and her way of looking at the world too, her way of looking at the world and talking about it, and we can see her worldview in the line from Daisy about childbirth. When she hears that her child is a girl, she says, oh, let it be a fool, a beautiful little fool, which is all that she thought the world let women be. Apparently, Zelda had said the same thing when their daughter, Scotty, had been born. It says a lot about Daisy and about Zelda. And let's pause here and note that when I described America on the rise and 
America in the Jazz Age, and when we say it's about youth dying and all of that, we're really talking about men, and we're really talking about white men. Fitzgerald was not immune to his time. He had some racial or racist tics, and these come into his writings and his letters, and he had the view of women that all men seem to have had before, let's say, 1975. And he was anti-Semitic at times, too. I'll have a little more about that and what it means for us as readers when I start making the case for why this book is so good and so Americanly good. Don't worry, folks. Fats Wilson is on the case. When the book came out, it was praised by many. It didn't sell a whole lot, only about 20,000 copies, as I said at the beginning. To give you some perspective, this side of paradise had had a printing of 3,000 copies and sold out in three days. It went through 12 printings, and in two years, it sold just under 50,000 copies. One would expect Gatsby to do better than that, but it did quite a bit worse. Sales situation doubtful, his editor wired him. Yours in Great Depression, Fitzgerald wrote back. It was a disappointment. Fitzgerald had had high hopes for it at the beginning, This one is going to be a, quote, consciously artistic achievement, he said. And that it will, he thought it would be a, quote, purely creative work, not trashy imaginings, as in my stories, but the sustained imagination of a sincere and yet radiant world, end quote. Perkins sent him some edits, and Fitzgerald said, with the aid you've given me, I can make Gatsby perfect. Meanwhile, His life was full of chaos, drinking that got out of control, moves to Rome, a growing baby, he and Zelda, Zelda, his new wife, a new mom, a a wild spirit. Zelda had taken up with a French officer and was gallivanting around. All of this was swirling in Fitzgerald's head as he was writing Gatsby. But as Perkins had said, the book was getting some excellent reviews. Fitzgerald received letters of praise from T.S. Eliot and Edith Wharton and Willa Cather. The New York Times called it a mystical, glamorous story of today. The L.A. Times said it was a revelation of life and a work of art, and that it leaves the reader in a mood of chastened wonder. All of these are true, still true even today. I read the book yesterday for the millionth time and felt the same thing. It carries you along, and then there are times when it takes off for the heavens. Another paper said it had, quote, some of the nicest little touches of contemporary observation you could imagine. So light, so delicate, so sharp, a literary lemon meringue, end quote. H.L. Mencken called it a glorified anecdote. That's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, Mencken's view of it. Well, he said a glorified anecdote and not too probable at that, was the full quote. But even the cranky critic, Mencken, called the writing full of charm and beauty and thought that the ending was careful and brilliant. After the stock market crash in 1929, the book was viewed as a period piece, an awkward glimpse at an age that was sort of embarrassing in retrospect, as viewed through the harsh, realistic prism of the Great Depression. But after World War II ended, the Jazz Age looked a little different. Now there were people who could admire the book's quality and see what it was able to say about America at a fascinating point in America's history. And critics and writers and readers were discovering it. The book that Fitzgerald hoped would sell 75,000 copies, in which only sold 20,000, earning Fitzgerald about $2,000 in the 15 years before Fitzgerald's death in 1940, now sells... 500,000 copies a year. Okay, time to give you my take on the book. I agree that the style is beautiful. It's a really gorgeous book, striking the right balance between ornate prose that's showy for its own sake and the kind of stripped-down prose that Hemingway was about to deliver, which influenced a ton of people afterwards. There are more adverbs here in this book than most readers will be used to, and that's thanks to Hemingway, I think who got writers to cross those words ending in L-Y out. But even setting aside Fitzgerald's gift for chiming sentences and sharp observations, the narrator here and the narrative voice is a thing of beauty. It carries you along like Huck Finn's voice or Holden Caulfield's voice. Only this narrator is smarter and wiser and more artistic than those others. He's closer to Bruce Marcel than either of those two. But he's not as verbose and at times impenetrable 
as Marcel can be. Uh, Nick Carraway is a sensitive observer, and that is a key to everything. Most teachers and commentators will say that the book is about the American dream and about disillusionment with the American dream, and maybe that's fine for a high school class. Gatsby's wealthy. He works very hard to be wealthy, to earn Daisy's love or attention, but it all goes sour in the end. And Fitzgerald, who was drawn to wealth and the rich like a Midwestern moth to a flame, fits right into this version of the book. He wanted to be wealthier than he was. Success was necessary for him to win the girl, after all. And then it all went to pieces, as it turned out that money did not buy happiness. That's an okay story, an okay interpretation. It's not wrong, but for me, it's a little shallow. You could write a fairy tale or a fable about that theme. And indeed, the tale of Midas is pretty much that. I view the book as something different. I said I'd have two stories for you, but I really have three. One is that terrible story that Hemingway made up, where Fitzgerald said the rich are different from you and me, and Hemingway retorted, yes, they have more money. That's Hemingway stealing someone else's line, trying to put himself forward as the smartest man in the room and the hero. He didn't actually say that to Fitzgerald. He stole it from someone else. But in any case, it doesn't. the anecdote, the exchange, doesn't do Fitzgerald justice. It sets out the idea that the rich are just like everyone else, only they happen to have a lot more money, and they're foolish with it, and they spend it on the wrong things, and true men, real men like Hemingway, know how vapid it is, and instead go about the world as kind of supermen with strength and courage and talent, and they're the ones who succeed, and it's only fools like Fitzgerald who gawk at wealth, who are missing the real point of life, That's almost as shallow as the Midas version. I actually think Fitzgerald was going for something deeper here, and I think he achieved it, which is why Gatsby is better than just a fairy tale about greed and broken dreams. So, that was story number one. Hemingway, put his criticism out of your mind. It doesn't go deep enough. Here's story number two from Saul Bellow. Saul Bellow's narrators. Saul Bellow, 20 years younger than Fitzgerald, but who also came of age in the 20s and 30s and lived through all this too, the century of American prosperity and American depression and America taking its place on the world stage. Another Midwesterner, except born in Canada and Jewish, spending more time in Chicago, taking a look at New York. Bellow had a brother who was in business, who was kind of a wise guy, who was sharp, who knew things, who was tough. Wised up, you might say. There's often a character like this in Bellow's books. Bellow, on the other hand, the Bellow stand-in, is dreamy, intellectual, hesitant, nuanced, seeing reality but seeing ambiguity in reality and basing so many of his novels on this almost desperate question, who runs things? Who really runs things? And it's one thing for the answer to be, oh, well, it's Wall Street, or oh, it's politicians, or oh, it's those lobbyists, or oh, it's Madison Avenue. And a lot of books will have those figures at their center, or make them the movers and shakers, criticize them as such, but do so from a distance. It's how you might view those people or types of people if you spend your life on a college campus in Nebraska or New Mexico or Florida or Maine or Illinois. Nothing against any of those places, And I love college campuses. But it's one thing to be looking at America and making judgment calls about the people running things based on what you hear on the radio or see on television or read about in articles and books. And it's another thing to be right up close to those people, studying them and talking to them and analyzing them from within. That's what Fitzgerald meant when he said they're different from you and me. Not just the kind of superficial look you get from hearing about them where you say, oh, they buy big yachts, but they're secretly unhappy. But being a part of this power structure and scrutinizing it from within, hearing and overhearing how they talk, how they view themselves, how others respond to them, and how that affects them if it does. Now my third story. This one is a little unusual, but it has stuck with me for years, so it must be important somehow. There was a show called Upstairs Downstairs from the 70s from the UK. Older listeners will know what I'm talking about. It was a very famous show. It told the story of a wealthy family 
who lived upstairs and the household staff who lived downstairs. Kind of a precursor to Downton Abbey. And I saw an interview with one of the actors who was in the family. He played James, the son, living upstairs. And he talked about how uncomfortable he was with the staff, with having staff like that. He was an actor. He hadn't grown up rich. He hadn't had servants. He didn't know how exactly his character should think about those servants, act around them, and so forth. So he went to visit some people who did, some wealthy people, people who lived in the way that he was supposed to represent as this character, James. And he was struck by the way they took their role and their position for granted, the way they would raise their hand and call for a servant to come and get them something. Think about how weird it is to be wealthy, to be living in a house where you're talking and telling secrets and having arguments and and exposing yourself and being vulnerable or being tough or whatever you're doing, and to have a line of people standing behind you hearing everything or having someone standing in the corner waiting and you're talking and they're there and they're a human being. They're not a pet or a robot, but they're there. They hear you. That's what this this actor was getting at. How strange is that? How do you how do you then talk to that servant when you're pretending that they don't exist or you're pretending that they somehow don't matter, don't count? What is it like? And he went to see these people and he couldn't believe how they raised their hand to call for the servant to come and get them what they needed. It changed everything for the way he saw them. And you can stop there on the surface and say, oh, well, we're just talking about a snob, or oh, look, we're talking about self-entitlement, how self-entitled this person is, how arrogant that is. And that's all true. And I'm on the side of the servant every time I know that's who I would be in that scenario. And I hate the idea that there are people who grow up feeling that way about servants and how entitled they are. And what Fitzgerald, I think, is saying is that there's an American version of this too. The American version is Tom Buchanan. Tom Buchanan, for me, is the key to the book. He is unbelievably self-confident. A polo player, white, a white supremacist, in fact, worried about the rise of Negro empires, worried about the dilution of the white race. That's part of it. He's a toxic male. That's part of it, too. Toxic masculinity. We see it in the way he treats women and the way he treats guys like Nick. And he's Christian, too. There's anti-Semitism here. And there are readings of this book. Oh, and he's wealthy, of course. And there are readings of this book that say Gatsby is black, Gatsby is Jewish, or Nick is gay, or the women are subjugated. And all these readings are getting at the same thing, I think. I don't think Gatsby is black. Although, if you read the book as Gatsby being black and passing for white... They talk about his brown body. They talk about his tan. They talk about his close-cropped hair. There's there's some, some details in there that could help. There's some exchanges that could be read in interesting ways. If you think about Gatsby being black and passing for white, and you're not trying to prove that this is true, that's the problem. It's like, is Santa white or is Santa black? Just stop trying to prove one or the other. Just accept it for what it is, which is... Uh, uh. That might be the dumbest argument ever. Okay, (laughs) I won't say any more about that one. Uh, Okay, where were we? Oh, yes, Gatsby. If you read the book as Gatsby being black and passing for white, your reading experience will be a rich one. And if I were casting this as a movie, I would be very tempted to cast someone of mixed race as Gatsby indeterminate race. The search for textual clues to prove it one way or the other turns literature into a puzzle of hidden meanings and symbolism, and I don't think we need to do that. I think that cheapens our readerly experience for grown-ups to try to definitively establish something that the author left as, at best, a little suggestive. You won't prove things one way or the other. You just won't, whether it's Gatsby being black or that Nick is gay. But Those readings sit side by side with the reading I prefer, which is the one I'm getting at, which is that these people, Nick, Gatsby, Daisy, Jordan, 
They're all the other for Tom Buchanan. And what Fitzgerald is getting at, I think, is that we're living in the myth of the American dream. And by myth, I don't mean that it's false, necessarily. I mean that it's the shared narrative that we all have that unites us. We believe this about America. America does have this. It's true at times, and it's not true at all at other times, or it's less true. But it's the very American story that there is social mobility here. We don't have hardened classes. They're not rigid. People can rise and fall. There are no hereditary aristocratic titles. There's no royal family. No one is born a Brahmin. There's merit and there's money, and either of those can move you through, move you up and take you down. And what Fitzgerald is saying, I think, is yes, that's the story we all share. We tell ourselves that, and there's truth in it, and there's dynamism in that. Tom Buchanan himself comes from the Midwest, as does Daisy, as does Gatsby, as does Nick, as does Jordan. Everyone here is sharing in that part of the dream. All the main characters are sharing in, they're participating in that shared myth of the dream. They're moving forward, they're moving up, they're trying. That's part of America. Nick points it out himself, that they're all Midwesterners. And yet, here's what's fascinating, is that there are Tom Buchanans, even in America. There are people who are as comfortable with their privilege and as self-entitled as those people that James, the upstairs-downstairs character, the actor, went to visit. And they are running things. They are the people who run things. How do they get that kind of supreme self-confidence? Nick, Here's an example of Tom's self-confidence. Nick is Daisy's cousin, second cousin, once removed. You'd think Tom would respect that. You'd think he'd see that Nick would have some loyalty to Daisy, not to him, Daisy's husband. And yet, when Tom and Nick are on the train together, he says, I want you to meet my girl. Pulls him off the train, and Nick says there was violence in the request. And yet, Nick goes. Nick goes. Nick could have said, no, I don't think so, Tom. I'm not going to... You're married to my cousin, my relation... I'm not going to go with you to meet your your girl. But he goes. He goes because it's Tom Buchanan. It's an extraordinary little move, but it's one of about a hundred such examples in this book where Tom Buchanan loudly insists on something just because he wants it to be so. He defies everyone else to respond, to contradict him, and sometimes they take him on sometimes passively, aggressively show their displeasure, and sometimes they bow to his will outright, and sometimes he gets what he wants by showing some emotion. He cracks his facade, shows a little softer side of sensitivity, and he ultimately, that's what that's how he dooms Daisy and Gatsby, is with that little crack in his facade. But he gets Daisy, he gets her with an outrageously expensive pearl necklace at the beginning, and then he has a a girlfriend, too, and he has polo ponies, and his money is legitimate in a way that Gatsby, who had to struggle up through another, through some bootlegging and gambling and other probable illegal activity, wasn't. He wasn't as legitimate as Tom Buchanan, but those are just the trappings, I think. I don't think this is a metaphor about legitimate wealth and illegitimate wealth. I think what fascinates Fitzgerald is not just the ostentatious displays of wealth and the way Daisy uses those fabulous shirts as a stand-in for her feelings when she breaks down in Gatsby's room and buries her face on the shirts and calls them beautiful because she can't break away from materialism. She's caught up in it and the wealth and the power and the whole structure of wealth, and she sort of worships the shirts as a sort of stand in for the conflict she feels between two men who've both sought to rise in America by these two different paths. Fitzgerald isn't just a guy who wanted to be rich because he was dazzled by expensive trinkets, and yet he was savvy enough to point out that rich people are often unhappy in spite of their wealth. That's an okay reading. It's kind of shallow. It's available to us but it's shallow, in my opinion. And it's not all that deep to point out, well, sure, there are rich people here, but they're all white men, 
And what about gay men or Jews or women? They're shut out. That's another reading, but that's not as deep as I want to go either. What I want to look at is what I think Fitzgerald wants us to look at. And this makes the book much more eternal and universal. We can read it today where we have a different different things holding people back and different things that no longer hold people back to the same extent. We can look at it from the point of view of a multicultural society where there are more opportunities than there were. We can say that the obstacles are still there, and they are. But we can also set that aside and look at what Fitzgerald is saying when he says, yes, America is the land of mobility. The society is set up to do that. And we tell ourselves that myth. And as we all know, it's not true for everyone. It's not true for black people. It's not true for women. But in a way, that doesn't matter. Because even when we let black people in and women in and gay people in and Jews in, we still have this phenomenon which is that certain people assume superiority over others. They're comfortable with it. They insist on it. They take action based on it. Might be based on wealth or merit or celebrity, but it's not available for everyone who's wealthy. It's a special kind of person. In Fitzgerald's day, it was most often a white, Protestant, wealthy, masculine Male, and that's still the path for it. Wealthy, straight men, white men. That's the path of least resistance. But I don't think Fitzgerald is saying, see, it's not a dream because it denies that dream to others. It denies it to a lot of people and it allows it to a lot of people. Today, it's allowed to a greater demographic group of people than in the past. And one hopes that tomorrow, in 20 years from now, in 100 years from now, There won't be distinctions based on race or religion or gender or any of those qualities. But what Fitzgerald points out is that America, for all its social mobility, has people who are in and people who are out. People who run things and people who don't. Haves and have-nots. And he's saying, look at how the haves are. Look at how they behave. Look at the haves who are comfortable as haves. Look at how the have-nots respond to them, how they bow down at times, how they defer, how they get obsessed to, how they try to emulate the haves, how they lose their minds around them. Look at what it's like to be a have, to assume that you are one, that's your natural position, to feel that the world bends to you and should bend to you. And look at what it's like to be a have-not, for whatever reason, race or gender or personal weakness or whatever and to live in a world with the haves. And all this against a backdrop of not having any rigid hereditary structures, any defined titles. There are Tom Buchanans who just loudly claim this status for themselves, and they're comfortable with it. They assume it. And there are Jay Gatsby's and Nick Carraway's and Daisy Buchanan's who respond to those Tom Buchanans in one way or another. What are those responses? What do they mean for the individuals? What do they mean for society? That's the real story of the American dream. It's a story of optimism and a story of futility and a story of the human condition, not just what it means to live in the 1920s in America, but what it means to live in a human society at all anywhere. It's a story Fitzgerald lived out in his own life. It's the one that drew the Midwestern moth to the flame that dazzled and then killed him. It's the story he put into his greatest book. It's the story of Gatsby. It's the story of all of us. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Thank you for joining us today. I would like to thank F. Scott Fitzgerald, of course, and all the people who brought this book into being. I'm thankful to them all. And for listener Brian for sending us the email about Shakespeare's Sonnet 130, which was very thoughtful and gave me a boost, something to think about. Fats Wilson got a... (laughs) Fats Wilson. Good old Fats Wilson. 
Got a little carried away with that one, too, I guess. Oh, I wish I was fats. Plunking the piano with my big belly and my thick fingers. Or hustling pool, earning my living. Instead, I'm just a scrawny guy with a microphone, like a kid with a toy. If Nick Carraway is a one and Tom Buchanan is a ten, I suppose I'm probably a zero. Which is probably where Fitzgerald was, too. No, he was probably a one or a two probably where he expects most of his readers to be as well. So we are a part of Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate Network. That's www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.